Hey, uh, Jeremy is a missionary in Serbia. If anybody has no idea what I'm talking about, one of our missionaries was here last week and preached for me. Um, I had somebody ask, so I kind of just want to let the whole church know uh, we have a few missionaries in our church, and one of the things that we really believe in is, is giving to missions and missions work. You know, part of our um, financial goals are to give away over half of our income to support local and foreign missions, to make sure we're taking care of first here the body of Christ, which is you folks. That's always our first responsibility. Um, and so we, we have Vlad and Sveta in, um, in, in Georgia. We have Jeremy and um, Stacy in Serbia. And then we have CBI, or Malawi, Africa. We have an orphanage um, in Malawi, Africa. And those are our main three things we support. We're looking to um, spread out into um, some CBI, which is Calvary Bible Institute. Our home church, and Lydia's dad is the president of the Calvary Bible Institute. And so we're opening campuses in seven different countries. And so there's lots of opportunity for missions um, with that. But if, you know, somebody asked me today about um, sponsoring Jeremy and how that works for our church, and so I'll just let you know, we, um, the last couple years, we, our annual support for the Serbian mission has been $2,500, and then when Jeremy comes, I always give him an honorarium, a love offering, 500 bucks, 1000 bucks, and so that's what we did again this year. We're giving Jeremy as a church 2500 for our annual support, and then we'll give him an extra 1000 just for, for his, his trip and, and just to bless him and his family, so... If you want to be a part of that um, or any of the missions that we're doing and you want to give to those those areas, you can always mark in the memo of your check. If God's put somebody on your heart, again, don't let me put that on you or pressure you. But um, if, if God speaks to you or if you connected with Jeremy and God, God wants you to be a part of what he's doing, then just write in your memo in your check what that's for. We'll make sure that he gets it. Amen. All right. Hey, I got some other good news. I wrote a check for uh, sixty eight thousand uh, dollars yesterday to pay off. The second on this building. Good. It was nice. It, 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 as fast as it, it was like this. The money was like this. <laughs> as fast as it came in, it went. But God was so good. And God is so good, you guys, that, you know, financially, the, um, you know, the church is in a, in a good position. And we were able to pay down all of our debt. So we have no more um, debt. But not The only debt we have, and I don't really consider this debt, but we, because... We have the building here that we owe, and we owe about 420 left on the building. Our, our monthly payments are about 2500 a month, um, and it's not debt because the bank owns the building, and they can have it if they need to to pay the debt, or the building's worth more than what, what we owe on it. So, uh, so it's been good. It's been good to take care of that stuff. We're able to uh, bless the worship team this week with some new equipment that they desperately needed, and so good stuff happening. Um, I think that's it. If you guys have your Bibles... Open them up with me. We're going to start a new study today in 1 Corinthians. And so if you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll get started. You know, one of the things that um, as you study your Bible, just to be familiar with, is that these epistles or these letters that Paul wrote to these different churches, um, they're, they're, you know, Paul went on, have you guys heard this term, his first missionary journey, his second missionary journey, his third missionary journey? Well, as he journeyed around the known world, a lot of in what's modern-day Turkey today, and that area from Turkey to Greece to Rome, um, he, he, would, he would get to a city, he would spend some time there. He always started with the synagogue and the Jews, 
Um, and then he would eventually begin to preach the gospel and gather, believers would, would begin to gather and grow. And eventually Paul would plant a church there. And then once he planted a church, he would raise up a local pastor and leaders in that church. And he would set them all up and he'd go start all over again. And Paul spent his whole life on his missionary journeys traveling the world this way, starting churches. And then what would happen is he would get news of these churches that he started and things that were going well and things that were going bad. And led by the Holy Spirit, Paul would write a letter back to the church um, correcting them, encouraging them, informing them. And so that's basically what, what a lot of your New Testament is, is these letters that Paul would write back to these churches that he started all over this, this area. And so the, the letter specifically to the Corinthians is a very corrective letter. Now, now one more little detail. And then as you get into the book of Acts in the New Testament, the book of Acts chronicles the life of Paul. So you, you, that's where we learn of his journeys and all that. And so it's always interesting to see in what chapter, in what area of Paul's life does he, was he in Ephesus. And we're, when we're reading Ephesians, we know, you know in this area, Acts 17. Well, we're in Acts, about the area of Acts 18 of the journey of Paul's life. So you can make a little note there. Acts 18 is where he was in Corinthians. There was a guy there that was an enemy of Paul, um, uh, Sosthenes. And Sosthenes brought Paul before the courts and tried to jail him. And, and then now in, in, in the story, as he writes this letter years later back to Corinthians, apparently Sosthenes became a Christian because Paul lists him here in the first verse. So, again, he's on his second missionary journey, and he's writing a letter back to the Corinthians. Now, you've got to understand something about the city of ancient Corinth, where Athens, Greece is on the southern tip of Greece. Just to the west of there was a port city called Corinth. And Corinth was the, the party city of his day. It was the Las Vegas meets Seattle. It was the seaport area. You had to go through there. All the commerce came through there, which meant all the different cultures and everything would collide there. It was a, it was a cultural center for worship. So you had a, a big um, temple there to the goddess Aphrodite. Many temples there in Athens. But the big one at the time of Paul was to Aphrodite. And um, it was very uh, sensual, and the worship of Aphrodite was done with um, prostitution. They say that in, in Corinth, what was the cultural norm was that a thousand temple prostitutes, male and female, would go into the city, and they would sell their idols and themselves, and it became very normal. i got to take a drink. Just kidding. I want to make an awkward pause for you guys. Or me, I don't know. I'm supposed to tell a joke, and then as you guys are laughing, I'm supposed to sneak a drink. Um, so, so again, it, Corinth was, was the party city. If somebody was a drunkard, if somebody was a partier, they were kind of titled a Corinthian. That was a way to say that they were this loose living. So what's, what's fascinating about Corinthians is that the, the church was huge and was growing. They were they were gifted in the gifts of the spirit and in so many different ways but in a place like las vegas or a place where there's a lot of debauchery and a lot of this lifestyle you also see that the gospel grows very well in those places you think that in a place like that the gospel would never go but it's exactly the opposite where people are hurting and where people are broken the gospel of jesus christ thrives because those broken lifestyles eventually lend themselves to they they want out and they want need and that's exactly what was happening in corinth and these, these idolatrous and all these things that were there. Now, now Paul, again, 
Corinthians, as I get ready to start a new study in Corinthians, and Corinthians, we're going to be here for a minute, First and Second Corinthians, about 30 chapters. Um, we'll try to take a chapter or two a week to try to get through it in a reasonable time, but we're going we're gonna to march through here. And some of this stuff is tough because Paul is correcting them, and it's hard to deal with. In one situation we'll get to in chapter 5, um, one of the guys in church is sleeping with his dad's wife and then going to church and bragging about it. And so it's, it's not always pleasant as we go through Corinthians to, to deal with these things. And there's many things like that. Their, their theology was bad when it came to baptism of the dead. They were suing one another outside in the public courts, and Paul deals with that. They were, they were misusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit when it came to public assembly. Um, they, were, they were having agape feasts or communion dinners, and they were getting drunk and leaving people out, and Paul deals with that. They were doing... Um, baptisms for the dead, which Paul forbid, and, and we'll get through that. And so um, lots of stuff going on in this, in this city, on and on and on. Um, let's, look at, let's look at verse number one. It says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, again, I already mentioned it, but just kind of a cool story of Sosthenes. He was somebody who was an enemy of the gospel and an enemy of Paul, and, and Christ brings them together. You guys remember that story I told two weeks ago about the kid David I grew up with, that we would fist fight every time we seen each other, and, and then I, I ran into him at a Grey Glory Harvest Crusade, and, and, he, and he yells out my name, and this guy was my arch enemy. And I'm walking on the Concord, and he's about four rows above me, and I hear my name, I hear, Chris! And I look up, and it's, it's this kid, David. And I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to get in a fight at the Christian Harvest Crusade. I just became a Christian. And, and David smiles really big, and he yells at me, and he says, when would you get saved? <laughs> and just immediately, Christ brings us together and brought us together. And so, um, so with this Sosthenes guy, it's, it's Jesus that, that changes him. And then in verse 2, it says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, really quickly, that word church there in the Greek is ekklesia. It's kind of important to understand the idea of what God's word says when he mentions you and I or the church. The, what we are, what we're called to be, the word ekklesia means the called out ones. And so we're, we're called out. We're called to be separate from the world. Jesus said that we're in this world but not of this world. And that we're not to walk as this world or be as this world. That we're different. You know, God's called you to be holy. God's called you um, to be sanctified. And those are, again, Words that mean basically the same thing, that you're separated or you're called out to be different. You know, I, any dead fish can float downstream, but we're live fish swimming against the current. And then he says, to those who are in the sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now, um, you know, when you think of a saint, what do you think of? I know you think of me first, but... Besides that, do you think of like, I don't know, what do you think of? Anybody? Saint what? Saint who? Christian? Christopher? Saint Paul? So, you know, the, the, the kind of the Catholic idea of a saint is, you know, somebody who's achieved the sainthood. They did miracles after they died. Somebody prayed to them. And there's this list. And if you meet all the criteria on this list that nobody will ever meet, then you get to be called a saint or you become sainted. But really, biblically, that's not the concept behind the word saint. There's only two types of people in the world. There's either saints or there's ain'ts. So you're a saint or you're an ain't. And a saint is simply just somebody who's born again in Jesus Christ. Now, to think of yourself as, I'm St. Chris. Uh, you know, I try to tell your mom or your dad, you're St. So-and-so. 
yeah, right, I gave birth to you, you ain't saint nothing. But as a Christian, you, you're a saint because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And so that's to us with saints. And, and again, you know, it's Jesus' righteousness imputed to you and I. It's not something we earned or deserved or we, we, we don't do miracles or we're not any better than anybody else. Saint just, just basically means born again. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you're a saint. And it says, to who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. And so, and the saints in every place, specifically who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, again, encouraging us to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, One of the verses of the week this this week in my daily devotions that God uses speak to me um, to call on the name of the Lord. It said, comes boldly to the throne of grace, that, that it's an invitation for you and I to come boldly. And that morning, I needed a lot of grace. I don't know what I was doing, but um, I probably ate too many Twinkies that morning. I was feeling bad. And I was like, God, you got to forgive me. And so I needed a lot of grace. And, and, and I opened my Bible app, and there it is, come boldly to the throne of God, to the throne of grace. And so again, if you need grace, God encourages you to come boldly. And Paul encourages us here to call in the name of Jesus Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are those what we call Pauline greetings. He starts every epistle with grace and peace. They're always in that order. You'll never see them in the New Testament, peace and grace, because you can't have the peace of God unless you first experience the grace of God. You know, and the grace of God is a, is a very powerful subject, and I think for um, a lot of folks it's something that we, we, we have a hard time with because we want to earn our salvation. We want to earn our standing with God. We want to do something to deserve it. But you can do nothing to earn it. You can do nothing to deserve it. You have to receive it by grace. Amen? And then he says in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. And again, to be thankful for that grace of God. I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm always so thankful for God's grace. You know, where I am and who I am and what I am and only by the grace of God. I can remember one of my favorite stories of Gail Irwin. He was an old, he's an old pastor at Calvary Chapel. He's been around and um, this young pastor had started a church and the church was exploding and things were going well and everything was in line and the news media got word of this new church that was starting up and so they came to the pastor and they said, oh man, look what you're doing and look what's happening and um, what what do you owe the credit to? And and um, Gail Irwin, Pastor Gail is there and he's watching it and he just pauses and he says, if this kid says anything but the grace of God, it's over. That it's all by the grace of God and for the God. And if he gives this any any other credit, any other reason why things are happening the way they're happening, he's this kid's in trouble. What do you think he said? The kid said, young pastor, I don't know either. He never told that. He never told that part of the story. Yes. Verse 5 says that you were enriched in everything by him. Wow. Some of these these verses of the Bible, you just read through them, but you don't like pause and chew on it for a minute. Listen, that you were, past tense, enriched by everything, in everything by him. We don't always feel that way, huh? We don't always feel like. God has enriched us, but but know this and be encouraged through the word of God that you've been enriched in everything, in all utterance and all knowledge. In verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting 
for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, camp on verse 7 for a minute. This is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. This is a doctrine that's taught in Jude and, and here in 1 Corinthians. You know, one of my many layers of, of, of the reason why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and that before things get really bad, that God's going to take the bride out of the way. Um, and, and, and this eminence that Jesus is coming. Timothy says that there's, there's a special crown laid up for those who love the appearing of Jesus. And so, you know, in, in the Bible, there's seven crowns that you can earn here on earth as a believer. I want six of them. The seventh one, um, you can have it, but I don't want it. That's the crown of the martyr. I'll pass on that one. But um, one of them is, is to simply love the appearing of Jesus Christ. And here, Paul's encouraging us that we should, we should look for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus is coming. You know, the Bible says in, in Hebrews t- chapter 10 and verse 25 that we should not forsake the gathering of the brother, brethren. And then listen, especially as you see the day approaching. That verse is so for today. It's so for today that we're not to forsake the gathering of the brethren together. You know, I'm so amazed right now. One of the things that through all this coronavirus, and I don't know how you guys feel, but one of the things that's really shocking me and I'm I'm, I'm careful and holding it close what I say, but I'm very shocked how afraid everybody is. Afraid of death, afraid of whatever, but the mass fear. Because the fear didn't just affect a certain group of people. It's everybody. You know, it, it's, a, it, it's amazing. And the news media is working overtime to promote fear. You know, I, I could pull out my phone right now. I could turn on my news feed, and I guarantee you that every story is about the coronavirus. U.S. coronavirus deaths top 140. The real doctors, nurses who helped with coronavirus. This is real. Fifteen times actors pretended not to be their age in TV amidst the coronavirus. Coronavirus updates. Trump dismisses rising. Five fascinating weekend reads among the coronavirus. Bird, sanctuary, among... No, I'm just kidding on some of those. (laughs) Most of those were all coronavirus. And now the new... They will not let it go. It's every day, every channel, every news, over and over and over again, feeding this fear. And then, and then the last narrative to come down the pipe a couple of weeks ago, now every other story is mask shaming. And if you won't wear a mask, that, you know, that <coughs> the, the narrative to mask shame you. But um, in Revelation, one of the verses that um, I really love, listen, this is what it says in Revelation chapter um, 12 and verse 11. It says, and they overcame him. By the way, who's him? That's Satan in that context. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. You know, and so they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. That, that means through their salvation. So for every one of us, the very main and most important thing is, is that you're first saved. That, that, that you've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. When it comes to the grace of God and it comes to salvation and whether or not you go to heaven or hell, the issue is the blood of Jesus Christ that's washed away your sins. Is Jesus Christ in your heart and life? When you stand before God on Judgment Day, He's only looking for one thing. He's not. He doesn't. There's no qualifier. There's no scale of good and bad. He's not looking at things you've done or haven't done. There's one thing that God is going to look at on Judgment Day. And when he looks at you, if he sees Jesus in your heart, if he sees the blood of Jesus Christ that's washed you, and your garments are white as snow, he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the Lord's rest. So it's a salvation, and you have to be saved. Jesus said, you must be born again. 
to surrender your heart and life to Jesus. You can have nothing. You can't move beyond that until you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You're not an ain't. You're a saint. And so first by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony. And it says the blood of the Lamb first and then their testimony. And, and you know what? None of you have to be Bible scholars and, and, and smart and intellectual and doctrinal to be able to share your faith. Because there's one thing that the world can't deny. There's one thing that they can't argue with or there's one thing that they can't take away from you. And that is what has God done in your life? You know, you look at me and my life and if you know my testimony, I was broken and, you know, as a 19-year-old kid and in South L.A., addicted to drugs and no God, no church in my family anywhere. And God has, God has changed me. And I can tell people, I, yeah, I know what God did in my life. I know that I was lost and now I'm found. I know that I was broken and, and I've been made whole. And God has done this in my life. And you, every one of us, we have a testimony of what God has done in your life to share. And the Bible tells us, Jesus says here, that, that, that we overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And the word, secondly, the word of our testimony is we just all have and share what God did. Now listen to this um, second part of this that's so important in the same verse. Um, and it says, And they did not love their lives even to death. Now, if you're new, um, I haven't stepped on your toes yet, but get ready. Tuck them under your seat or something because I want to step on your toes a little bit. Look back to 1 Corinthians. It says um, in, verse, in verse number 8, Who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse number 9, it says that you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, God has not called us to hole up. God has not called us to isolate and to separate ourselves. And I'm not, I'm not talking about social distancing and those things. I'm saying that God has not called us, that Jesus is coming in. He said, be ready for the eminency. Oh, so, you know, now I'm just going to hide and I'm going to get away and I'm just going to wait for Jesus. God's not called us to that. God's called us to make a difference in the world. God's called us to share the gospel and to continue to stand. And, 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 and that, you know, this, this fear, God's not want us to live in fear. You know, it, it, there's, a, there's a difference, right? And we've got we to gotta draw that line that, 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 that we trust the Lord. It doesn't mean that we don't use caution or, you know, because I trust the Lord, it doesn't mean I drive my car 120 miles out on the freeway with no, you know, with no, with no seatbelt. That's, that's a different issue. But, but to live in fear, it, it, God says that, that we're not to live in fear. He's not giving you a spirit of fear, but that of love and of power and of a sound mind. And that we can trust God through all of this. You know, I've heard a lot of people. I've heard people when I was in Yucca Valley. I talked to a couple of Christian brothers that I love. And one of them was telling me, oh, I believe that the first seal has been broken and the spirit of Antichrist has been released. And the second seal of Revelation 6 has been broken. Um, this pestilence, is the, he's been crowned with a, because it says that the, the rider on the white horse in the first, in the first trumpet will, will receive a crown. They called it the coronavirus. And, and again, we just got through going through First and Second Thessalonians. And the whole point of it was they thought they were going through the tribulation. And Paul says, you're not going in, you've not entered the tribulation. And I was trying to share this, and he, he had the opinion. I've heard that opinion again, that we are in the great tribulation, and it's begun. Listen, you're not, and we are not in the great tribulation. Huge difference. 
by this. Those are two horsemen. If he believes two horsemen have already ridden, by the time the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride, which is the very first thing that's going to happen when the seven-year tribulation begins, a third of the world's population is going to be, is going to be killed. The, the coronavirus ain't killing a third of the world's population. Pretty sure the survival rate is like 99.2%. And not to, not to take away or mock the other 0.08%. God bless them. But it's not, it's not it. And we're not there. You know, and again, we, we want to use caution. We want to be wise. We want to be safe. But we don't want to live in fear. And, and, and unfortunately, this is robbing us. And it's defeating so many people. I encourage them to step out in Jesus and that God is coming and we can trust Him all the way through. Amen? So it's not time to bunker in a hole. It's not time to move to Montana and dig a hole and buy guns and ammo. and That's not going to work. And store food and alternative currencies. And You, you, know, you know what the Bible says? That a, that, you know what that a piece of bread will buy a bag of gold in that day. But thank God you won't be here for it. Because you, God will, will keep you from that hour. Amen? So they loved not their lives even unto death. Do you guys remember when this whole coronavirus started? How many of you guys remember the very first sermon that I preached on day one of coronavirus? I, I, I put a picture of a gun pointing at you. How rude, right? And, and, and the sermon was called Looking Down the Barrel of a Gun. And we said that even in the even in the face of a barrel of a gun, that that you know what's the worst that can happen? For me, for you, if you you go to be with Jesus, Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain. And the worst thing that could happen to you is you could start walking on streets of gold. I don't think that's such a bad thing. I'm kind of ready. Let's do it in the rapture. Let's do it together. Coming soon, coming soon to be ready. So again, we have here the eminence and this idea that we're to be ready, we're to be watching, that, that even so in these last days, as you see all of these things taking place. You know, the thing that I, I preach to death, right? In the sermon on, or the Olivet Sermon, in the last day's sermon, Jesus said, when you see all these things begin to happen. You know what's happening right now, you guys? You are seeing all of these things begin to happen. When you see all of these things begin to happen, Jesus said what? You guys should know that now. By now, I preached every Sunday almost. When you see these things begin to happen, look up, your redemption draws nigh. He did not say to be scared and hide and store and shoot people in Jesus' name if they come and try to get your food. None of those things. So be encouraged. He's not giving us a spirit of fear, but that of power and of love and of a sound mind. You know, we got, we got to, you guys got to turn these news stories off. I saw this meme. It was so true. It said that um, it was a bunch of Amish people. And they were in this Amish community. And they're looking around at each other. And the guy's like, you know what? We haven't had coronavirus. So how come we, nobody here's had coronavirus? The other guy said, oh, that's because we don't have TV. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, unfortunately, to some degree, we, we in the United States, we've made the church a cruise ship. And, 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 you know, I've, I've shared this concept with you guys years ago. I've shared this concept with you guys in our church that we're not a cruise ship. We don't want to be a cruise ship. But that, unfortunately, that's what happens. You know, church is very comfortable. And church is, is, is very easy. And, you know, we fight over the stupidest things, the color of the carpet. And, 
you know, this and that. And, and we miss the, the issue of what the power of the church is intended to do and intended to be. We're called to be salt and light and make a real difference in the world. You know, we're trying to do our, our best here to affect our environment and our community. And we're reaching all the way to Malawi, Africa, where, it's, where we're feeding children on a daily basis on the real and giving them Jesus and um, raising up pastors in Serbia and um, all kinds of people in the country of Georgia, Iranians and all. Georgia has no immigration laws as we support what they're doing there. And they're bringing people from all over that area of the world to train them up in ministry. And, and trying to make a difference. But the, the church is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. And so if you're here and you're sitting in your chair today, you're not in a lounge next to the pool. That's a different time. That's a vacation. Imagine it's a battleship. So what, what would be in front of you if you were on a battleship? Depends what your station is. Everybody would have a different station. The battleship has lots of stations. There's somebody in the galley that's making the food. There's somebody that's sitting behind the guns. There's somebody that's driving it. But, but again, the church is a battleship, but in, for that concept to work, every one of us, you and me included, have to understand that you have to take up a station on the battleship for Jesus. Amen? You guys are sleeping. That was better than you said amen to. No, I'm just kidding. Hey, let's go back verse number 10. Hey, we're going to switch gears here a little bit. Um, so all of these problems in... First and Second Corinthians. I mean, tons of problems, you guys. Heavy stuff, right? I mentioned some of them. Abusing the Lord's Supper, supper. The gifts of the Spirit in public were being misused. They were um, um, they were taking church members to public courts. Their theology was bad with respect to resurrection of the dead and other things. Um, um, they celebrated the Lord's Supper and drunkenness. There was immorality, incest, all kinds of issues in the in the church in Corinthians. The, this city and this environment that the church was in was infecting the church and, and they were having a hard time um, separating and growing in, in these areas and so all of this stuff going on in this church. You know, Paul says about the Corinthians, he calls them carnal Christians. Now, if you're Spanish or Mexican, you're not carnal, that's different. That's your homeboy, carnal, me brother. But um, carnal Christian or, yeah, carne asada maybe? Car carnal Carnal Christians. So they were, they were worldly. You know, but what's fascinating is even though they struggled, and some of them, as Paul himself described, described them as worldly or carnal Christians, that they would all go up in the rapture, that they were all children of, of Christ into the, under the grace of God. But in this city and in all of these problems, the biggest problem, the first problem that Paul's going to address to the Corinthians in the book, anybody want to take a wild guess? Division. Look at what it says in verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you perfectly join together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household. So Chloe was gossiping to Paul. She came and, hey, this is what's happening over here. And so Paul's like, hey, Chloe told me about you guys. If you're like a gossip, your name should be Chloe. I think that just fits, right? No, Chloe was cool. She was just telling Paul what was going on. Um, that there are, concern, there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And then 13, is Christ divided? Question. No. So should the church of Christ be divided? No. You know, the, 
biggest issue um, in the church today is division. Through gossip and murmuring and the number one problem, I've been a pastor for 25 years and 90% of the major struggles that I have and depressions and hardships come through the area of division in the church. Through gossip, through murmuring, through complaining and problems that, you know, that, you know Jesus God, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Satan is not attacking us from the outside and prevailing against the church, but he is effective at, at attacking the church from the inside. You know, they say the average pastor quits over seven people who are, who are upset with him or don't like what he's doing. You know, in a lot of places, in a lot of denominations, and thank God that, that, that we haven't, and, you know, for the most part, Calvary Chapel's escaped a lot of this, but the average stint that a pastor makes it in the church is two years, two and a half years, before the, before the divisions and the troubles. You know, look at, turn back one page to Romans. Um, if you're in 1 Corinthians, turn back one page, and you'll find yourself in Romans 15, or 16, and look at verse number 17, Romans 16, 17. It says, Now I urge you, brethren... Note those who, somebody, and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and, let's do that one more time. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who, and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and, so what what are you and I supposed to do with those who are causing division? Avoid them. That's pretty hardcore. You know how you can stop gossip in its tracks? A couple different ways. One of them is if somebody starts gossiping, you just say, hey, I would appreciate it if you wouldn't gossip to me. They'll go find somebody else because gossip loves gossip. And they'll got plenty of people to talk to. But you can shut it down when it comes to your house. Or if they come and they want to talk to you about me or they want to talk to you about somebody else in church, why don't you say, hey, you know, my iPhone has this three-way thing. Why don't we call them and then you can tell me what you're going to tell me. Yeah, no, uh, no, I don't want to do that. You know, but stop it where it is because gossip takes two to tango. And I don't care if you're the one sharing it or listening it, you're both guilty of the same sin. And listen, it is a biblical sin in God's eyes. When you, when I, if I asked you for a list of sins and you took out a pen right now and you started writing things down that were sin, I guarantee you before this discussion, gossip wouldn't have been high on your list if it was on your list at all. Murder, lie, cheat, you know, on and on and on. But, divo- but division and, and gossip is, is on that list in the, same, in the same position. And so Paul addresses it very urgently and immediately. I, I, think, it's, I think it's not by mistake that it's the first thing that Paul decides to talk about before he gets on to many big issues that the church in Corinth was going through. And so, um, so part of it was they were saying that, you know, verse number 12, each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm Cephas, or that's Peter, the other apostle, or of Christ. You know, we kind of have that, right? Well, I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Pentecostal, or I'm a Lutheran, or I'm, I'm this, and we, we have these divisions that we stand by. And, you know, Calvary Chapel, Pastor Chuck in the, in the early, late 60s, early 70s, you know, he, he recognized that, and he didn't want to be a part of it, so he said, well, we're non-denominational. But now we have the same pride they do. Yeah, no, I'm not losing. I'm non-denominational. Like that, what people say, well, what's your uh, my denom- denomination is non-denominational. So you know, we want to be careful that we don't have the same fall and the same pride and the same idea. And so we were against that idea as such. But it, it is the same. And listen, we are Christ is not divided. So we have brothers and sisters in Jesus 
and all kinds of different faiths. So why? You know, people, sometimes people ask me, then why does God allow all of these factions? You know, liturgical churches. You guys ever been to a church where everybody wears, the clergy all wear, you know, liturgical, cler- clerical garments and different things and, um, or, you know, everything is done a certain way or, you know, you've been to churches where all the women have to wear long dresses and covered up to their, their wrists and, you know, different rules or come to Calvary Chapel and people freak out because people are in flip-flops and t-shirts and, you know, hats and, you know, it's, it's all good. And, but there's all these different flavors and styles, Presbyterian and Lutheran and Baptist and Pentecostal and non-denominational and, you know, and, and we have this big plethora of, 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 of differences. Listen, there, there's room for differences within the body of Christ. It's still one body. And, and I don't think that God wanted to exclude anybody. So he allows different factions because it meets more people where they are. Some people will come to church here and they, they're just not going to be comfortable with our style. And they're going to go down the street to the Pentecostal or Baptist church and, and it's going to feel more normal to them. And so God's going to allow that to minister to them and reach them and meet them. He's not going to exclude them, nor is he going to isolate to one right way. In church, listen, in the area of unity and division, we have what are called essentials and non-essentials, okay? In the non-essential issues, there's room for some disagreements doctrinally. Some of the areas of the non-essentials, how we baptize. For for example, um, if you guys have a Lutheran background or our Lutheran brothers and sisters, they baptize babies and they don't emerge them, they sprinkle them. We don't baptize babies, and when we baptize adults, and we emerge them. That's a difference in theology and indifference. But it's a non-essential. It doesn't matter for heaven and hell, according to me. They might think differently, but no. Um, the gifts of the Spirit. Um, end times prophecy. Those are non-essential issues. That within the body of Christ, there's some room for differences. But essential issues, those are things that separate us, where... It's not a part of the body of Christ. We might put it in a category as a cult or an ism or a schism. And those are, those are matters of life and death. Those are matters of salvation. And number one, the number one issue on the essential side of the house is who is Jesus? Because anybody outside of the body of Christ, they have to just notch Jesus down even just a little bit. All you have to do, and, and every one of them, 100% of anything outside the body of Christ, the first thing is that Jesus will just be de-elevated just a little bit from God to just a little bit. And so that's an important issue because if you have the wrong Jesus, you're not saved. You know, you, oh, it's Jesus. We can use the term Jesus, but that can, that doesn't necessarily mean you're, we're talking about the same thing. That we're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, 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 that you have, that's, that's an essential issue. So in those areas, you know, there's, there's a reason that we, we divide. But in non-essential issues, there should be unity and love. Amen? So Paul says, stop all of that. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. You know, again, I'm of whatever. I'm of this church or I'm of that church. It doesn't matter. We're all brothers and sisters. You know, what, you know what's going to be the difference when we get to heaven? Not a thing. We're all going to be in the same heaven, walking on the same streets. Those folks are going to be our neighbors and our brothers and sisters, literally in Christ. Is Christ divided? No, he's not divided. Um, and then in verse 13, was Paul crucified for you? Was Pastor Chris crucified for you? Hey, what do, we, what do you got to be proud of or pride in your life? Did you die for anybody? 
Did you rise again from the grave? Do you have a heaven to bring people to or hell to send people to? No, we, got, we don't. And Paul says, who am I? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, you weren't. You weren't baptized in the name of Calvary Chapel. When I baptized you, I didn't say I baptized you in the name of Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel. I said I baptized you in the name of Jesus. I baptized you in the name of the Father and the Son who is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I have to say it that way is because weird folks get things twisted. So I just cover all my bases. In the name of the Father, and the Son, who is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, amen. And then he says in verse 14, I thank God I baptized none of you. What? Why would Paul thank God that he didn't baptize anybody? If baptism is how we get saved, actually that just blows a pretty big hole in baptismal regeneration, which is the folks that believe you have to be water baptized to go to heaven. That's just not true. You know, obviously the number one example is the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross was a terrible guy. He was rightfully being on death row and, and, and being um, convicted and sentenced to death. If he was in our society today, I'm pretty sure every one of us would agree that he belonged on death row and belonged to have his, his um, sentence carried out. And he's hanging on a cross. And by the grace of God, he puts his faith in Jesus. And he says, and he repents and he asks Jesus to forgive him and remember him when he gets to heaven. And Jesus says to the thief on the cross, what? Today you will be with me in paradise. A few hours later, that guy was walking on streets of gold. He, had never, he, didn't, have, he didn't get down. He never tithed. He never went to church. He, he never did anything. None of that was required for heaven. He simply put his faith in Jesus and he was saved. He simply put his faith in Jesus up to the last moment of his life. And he, he probably wanted to get baptized, but he was a little hung up, so he couldn't, couldn't, couldn't get baptized that day. I got those out of the Cracker Jack box. All right. Um, so, again, I'm not I'm teaching necessarily through baptism today, but I think this scripture makes a point that, um, you know, I will say this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you um, should be baptized with water. Jesus was baptized in water as an example for you and I. It is, it is important. You know, I, I really believe, you know, as a pastor, the, the greatest joy in ministry for me is baptisms. It always is. Because everything you do, all the life that I spend trying to see like fruit, baptisms represent fruit in ministry. Those are people that are going to heaven, that maybe, that, that were not going to heaven before, that were brought out of the darkness into the light. So it always brings so much joy to get to baptize folks. You know, and, and, and it is important. So if you've not been water baptized and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, fix that. Get baptized. The next time we'll be announcing them when we do our baptisms and get water baptized. It's super important. But just understand, it doesn't save you. And I won't baptize you until after you're saved anyways. You get saved first. You ask Jesus in your life. You surrender. And then you get baptized as as an outward sign of what's inwardly happened in your life. In verse 14, he says, or verse 16, he says, Yes, I also baptized, oh wait, verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to somebody, preach the gospel. Somebody say, preach 
um, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And so, again, Paul was saying, not with wisdom of words. And if we're not preaching with wisdom of words, what's left? It's the Word of God. We preach the Word of God. I, I believe in believe in that wholeheartedly, that it's the Word of God that changes lives. The more I could get up here every Sunday and just read chapters of the Bible to you, and your lives will change. Because it's the Word of God that changes lives, not any fancy words. And then in verse 18, he says, in a kind of change of venue now a little bit, we're leaving the, the division talk. He's kind of covered it. He's pretty clear. He doesn't want division in the church. And that if we find division, we're to avoid that person. And then in verse number 18, for the message of the harmonica is, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Somebody say amen. One more time, listen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you know anybody that would fit in that category that the cross is foolishness to them? Unfortunately, I know some folks that, that, that the cross to them is foolishness. And, and I'm appalled by it. You know, I wear a cross now. Um, I, I've been a pastor in California for, for 15 years, and I never wore a cross. Nobody really wore crosses as like a deal. It was just wasn't a thing, you know, like maybe but something. But when I got to Utah, I started noticing that the, the brothers in church and that, that they were wearing crosses. But here it was like it meant something. Like if you see somebody with a cross, you're pretty sure that's a born-again believer in Jesus, that that's an evangelical Christian. You know, we live in one of the least evangelical counties in all of the United States. What's my number? Less than 1%, like 0.76% evangelical Christian population in Tooele County. I think in Happy Valley, where, where Provo is, they, they maybe have a little smaller number, but we're one of the least evangelical counties in all the United States. In all the United States. And so here, you know, when you see a cross, it, it means something. And I, and, I, and I love this verse. I think this verse is so powerful and important that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. You know, I've, ha I've had that conversation with somebody. Why do you wear a cross? I'll say because it, it, it represents Jesus' sacrifice for me and for my sin. And, and it's, a, it's a constant reminder. Jesus said in communion and in, in the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. And it's a constant reminder of the price that Jesus paid in my place. And, and you know, somebody said, well, well if, you know, if Jesus got hit by a bus, would you wear a bus around your neck? I'll say, yeah, if he pushed me out of the way and then he got hit by the bus, I would. You know, that, that it's, it represents something that's powerful and important. And, and really the whole idea of the cross, to have any kind of, think the cross is foolishness in any way, again, it's just appalling to me. I just don't get it. Like the power of the cross is everything. It's the cross, the cross, the cross. Everything in your Bible in the Old Testament points forward to the cross of Jesus. Everything in your Bible in the New Testament points back to the cross of Jesus. The entire Bible is about the cross and about Jesus' death, and you can't leave without His resurrection. That's a, that's a key component to the cross. His death and resurrection. And it's, it is the cross. You know Billy Graham, late in life, and hopefully you have the same love and respect for Billy Graham that I do, and you, you can appreciate that. But he was going to make one last um, crusade, old in his age. He was in his 90s. And, and, and he 
he, they were going to do it. He couldn't preach anymore and go public. So he was going to make a film, and they actually aired it all over network television. Fox um, News actually aired it. It was one special him and his son were working on. And, and he, his last message that Billy Graham wanted to share with the world, it went all over the world, last evangelical Billy Graham crusade. He did it on video. Remember what he called it? The cross. From the heart of Billy Graham. What do you want this last message to be called, Billy? The cross. And they just made a, made a story about the cross. And then he goes on and he says um, in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the age? Has not God made the foolish wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of the world, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God, though the foolishness of, of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, he says that he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. You know what you find um, in the church? You know, it's funny because when God recruits, he doesn't, you know, when he was looking for the disciples, for example, Jesus prayed all night. It says that he stayed up all night long praying. So it was eight hours, ten hours, six hours. But he stayed up all night praying. And the next morning, he, he chose the twelve disciples. Now, he chose some knuckleheads. So either he blew that prayer the night before, or, or that's what he prayed for. And he chose everyday people, electricians and the plumbers today and mailmen and, you know, just common men of his day. Some, some in, in politics and some average people. But he, he just chose the, the foolish things of the world. You know what he didn't do? He didn't go to the Yale graduation line and wait for the, the top 1% of the class to come off the graduating line and, and recruit them as disciples of Jesus. He takes the foolish things of the world, and they're all welcome, don't get me wrong, but he takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And the church is made up of a bunch of broken people. When King David was running for Saul, God gathered around him some men that were disgruntled and in debt and discouraged. And, and these, these ragtag group of men, he rises up to be David's faithful 400, like the movie 300, the, the real deal though. And these men are just like you and I. And, you know, when we, when we go and we share the gospel, you know, to be honest, if you got a bunch of initials after your name, it's, it, it's pretty more difficult to share the gospel to, to people that are accomplished and, and, and so know everything. And not the ones out there, the rich and powerful, receiving the gospel. It's the average, everyday person. And then in sharing the gospel, God takes broken people. You know, within Calvary Chapel, as Calvary Chapels really began to grow, in 1994, Calvary Chapel became the largest um, non-denominational church in the world. And 95% and 95 of its pastors didn't have college degrees. Their, most of their degrees were former drug addicts and former this and that and um, hippies and all this. One of, the, one of the largest Calvary Chapels in the network in San Diego, Mike McIntosh is the pastor there. 
And Pastor Mike was, um, he was a hippie in the 60s, and, and he had taken so much acid that he had a shotgun went off in, in a room that he was in. And, and he believed that it hit him. And it didn't, never, you know, it didn't touch him, it hit him, just the sound. And for months he walked around the streets of San Diego as a zombie, believing half of his brain was blown off. And God restored his mind and his brain. And he got saved and he became a leader and a pastor. And he started a church in San Diego that grew to be one of the largest churches in San Diego. And he's an amazing person. I mean, Pastor Mike is an amazing Bible teacher. And just He's done missions all over Mexico. But this is the foolish thing of the world that God has chosen to confound the wise. Why does he do it? Pretty simple answer. Because then no one can get the glory but him. <laughs> if I can use a guy like that, take this crazy dude off the street who's walking around like a zombie in a state thinking his, half his brain was blown off to, to become in a, you know, a servant of God. Only God can get the glory. When you see what God does through my life, you say, there's no way it has to be God. And your life as well. God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise for God's glory. You know, if, if yeah, part of the problem is, right, if I had a bunch of letters after my name, you know, those fancy letters, whatever they are, ES2, DDS, you know, CEO, MDiv, Masters Div, BVDs, I don't know, like, if I had some letters like that after my name, you, you might say it's, it's all of those things that, you know, that there's a reason why God's using them or this is happening, but that's not it at all. It's only by the what? Woo! Somebody. It's only by the grace of God. Hey, we're almost done, you guys. Um, and then in verse 26, he says, we might finish the whole chapter today. It says in um, number 20, verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now, listen, he says not many. Okay? So, so again, not to exclude the mighty and the, those that I talked about, the, the really higher echelon, that they are called as well. And, but, but it says not many. The bulk of, of, of what God has done he did it with a ragtag group of fishermen um, that, that were just out of control and turned the whole world upside down. And then he says in verse 27, and he's still doing the same thing today. But God has chosen, here's that verse, the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Now you understand your pastor. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to, get, to, put to shame the things which are mighty. You, you, know, you know what God does, right, all the time? He's all the way through. You think of Gideon and his and his and his men. You guys know the story, right? Gideon and he has thirty-five thousand men, and they're up against one hundred and thirty-five thousand Assyrians. You know, and he goes and prays to the Lord, and you know he's a hundred thousand men short. And God says, uh, Gideon, uh, you got too many men. What you talking about, Willis? So yeah, you got too many men. Go and tell those who are scared to go home. And then Gideon goes and he says, God says those that are afraid can go home. And the men leave and then they keep leaving. And then he says, Lord, okay, now, and God says, you still have too many men. And he says, take them down to the water. And he said, the ones that put their face down in the water like a dog, he said, send them home. And the ones who reach down in the water and bring it up to their face, he said, put those over here. And so Gideon's watching the men and they go down to the water and some get all the way down in the water like a dog and and lap it up, and he puts them over here. And then some bring it to their hands, and he puts them over here. 300 brought hand to mouth, and Gideon put them over here. And God said, send all these home. I'm only going to use these 300. 
Now the odds are 450 Assyrians to one Hebrew. Multiple times in the Bible, God has those same exact odds, 450 to one. Um, when Elijah fights the prophets of Baal in, in Samuel, 450 to one. God likes those odds. God feels like he's ready to fight now when it's 450. It's kind of a fair fight when it's 450 to one against him. So 300 men, some people say, oh yeah, you know, these, these 300 that, that reached down in the water, the reason why God chose them is because they were noble and they were the warriors and they were the ones that were watching over their shoulders, not falling off the stage. And they were, they were kept a willful eye, and they were the real meat guys, the tough soldiers. No, those are the guys that were too fat and lazy to get all the way down in the water. Those are the ones that God chose because that fits the story of what God wanted to use so that God would get the glory and that we could trust Him and that we could just know that God was going to show up and do a miracle. Amen? And then he says um, in verse 28, again, the same idea. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. It makes me feel good. God has chosen me despite of me. You know, anything that happens, it's just, it's in spite of me. It's because God has chosen me. And know that you have been chosen. And you don't have to earn it. Like, you know what's so cool about God? God knew you were all messed up and he chose you anyway. And then when you mess up more, he's not like, oh, I made a mistake. You know, I want you on the other team. No, he, he knew all that way beforehand, and he still chose you, and he still loves you. And you know what's fascinating about God? The Bible says that he even likes you. It's true. It does. Like, oh, yeah, I know he loves me. He's a big God. He still chose me, but he probably wouldn't want to hang out with me this year. I'm sure he doesn't like who I am. No, no, no. He even tells you, and he's very clear, that he likes you. He likes who you are. He'd hang out with you. He'd come and have tea with you coffee, just not at Starbucks. He'd go to Jana's. All right, then he says um, in verse 29, then no, or he would go to Dita's cafe or he would come to our coffee shop. That's where Jesus would go. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that it is written, he who glorifies let him glory where? In the Lord and only the Lord. Let's stand. Let's have the worship team come up and close us in a song. Hey, I, I want to just kind of close with two things. Number one, we, we talked about in the message today the importance of being born again. And, and, and we, we want to and we need to make sure that as a family of believers that we give you an opportunity to make sure that your heart and your life is right with Jesus Christ? It's a simple question. If you died today, would you go to heaven? And if your answer is, I hope so, then it's probably not so. If your answer is, I think so, then, then it's not where you want to be. If your answer is, I know so, you're in good shape. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and you know so, you don't get saved again today. or You're already saved. You can, you can pray to be closer to God and to grow in Him and to fall more in love with Him. But once you're saved, you're saved. But if you're not sure if you're, if you're going to heaven today, I want to give you an opportunity to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Only by the grace of God, not by your merits, but out just like the thief on the cross, if you surrender and you ask Jesus and you invite Jesus in, He will come in. Jesus always comes where He's invited. But it has to be a full invitation 
to, to be a part of your life and to be everything in your life, to give him all of your life. If you're only ready to give him 90% today, you're just not ready. And I encourage you that, that to, to, to step out and get to the point where you're willing now to say, God, I give you all of my life. That's salvation. It's salvation to receive the grace and, and to receive Jesus into your life and give him all of your heart and life. If that's you today, I'd just like us to pray together and lead you in a prayer where you can surrender your heart and life to Jesus. Will you just close your eyes and bow your head with me? Can we pray out loud as a church family and just everybody if you're saved or not? And Listen, if, if you are praying this prayer of salvation, just pray to Jesus. Talk to Jesus and he'll hear your heart and he will receive you as his child and adopt you and save you right now. Pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I surrender all. I know that you died on a cross and rose again the third day. I ask you into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We love you guys. God bless you guys. We're going to sing a last song. Um, I believe Josh and Amber will be up to pray for you. If you'd like individual prayer, um, Darlene and Kevin, are you guys okay to pray for folks today? Okay, Darlene and Kevin will also be up. Again, if you have some individual prayers, if you need physical healing, if you need anything um, in your life, you want to maybe a praise report or something encouraging, we invite you to take this opportunity to receive and be prayed over um, as we sing this last song. God bless you guys. Have a great week.